This morning we're back into Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 and 9. And if you've read your Bible even a couple times, these should be very familiar verses to you. If you grew up in church and you did things like Awana or some kind of program like that, I'm sure this was one of the first verses that you memorized. It was for me, and I still remember it. So as we come to these verses, to 8 and 9, I want us to remember from two weeks ago what we saw in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. God has delivered us from death. He's raised us to newness of life. And he's promised to give us this never-ending riches, to show us the riches of his grace towards us in Christ for all of eternity. Now, if we read that, we should be asking the question, what happened that I can be a participant in that grace? What happened? If God is going to pour out the riches of his kindness and grace towards us for all of eternity, what qualifies me to participate in that? And that's why I think Paul follows up with verses 8 and 9. Because he's going to tell us the reason we come into that is because God has saved us by his grace, which qualifies us then to be a recipient of his grace forever. Sometimes when we spend a number of years in the church, you might read over this passage and you say, well, yeah, God's, yep, we've been saved by grace. And it becomes familiar almost in a sense. And what I want to do this morning is to really draw attention to this unbelievable fact that even though we were dead in our sin, God extends grace and saves. That shouldn't be something we just read over. That should be something that lands on us with weight and intensity. So as we go through this, just think in your own mind. As you read, especially verse 7, about the coming outpouring of God's grace, do you find it hard to believe in some ways? Do you find it almost unbelievable that how can this be? How can it be? You know yourself better than anybody. You know your sin. You know the things you struggle with. How could it be that God would pour out his grace on you forever? I think that question gets answered here in verses 8 and 9. So if you haven't done so, let's open our Bibles. Ephesians 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. And we'll pray and we'll get going for this morning. So please follow along as I read Ephesians 2. Starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this 
hopefully familiar text this morning. I pray that your spirit would do a fresh work in our hearts. Even though we may have heard this several times, or if this is the first time we're hearing it, I pray that it would land on each one of us with appropriate wonder at what you have done. You've saved us by your grace, and this is not our own doing. And as we look at it this morning, Father, and we see the different ways of looking at this, as we see what you have done in Christ, I just pray, Lord, that you would work it in our hearts. We don't want to read the Bible as any other book because it is not like any other book. It is your very word to us. It's the way that you reveal yourself to us. So God, come. Do the work that only you can do. Take my feeble, sinful words that come out of my mouth, Lord, and would you turn them for good. Thank you for the confidence we have in Christ. And pray in his name. Amen. Amen. The title of the message this morning is By Grace Through Faith. Perhaps not that original, but hopefully you'll see where I got it as we work through the text this morning. And what I want to do is I want to, if, if you know yourself to be saved this morning, you know that you belong to Christ, I want this morning to give you a better understanding perhaps of how that happened. And if you aren't in Christ this morning, if you are apart from him, if you've not turned to him, repented of your sin, I want to offer this text as hope to you and encouragement to you. So let's start working through, starting in verse 8. Paul says first that it is by grace that we have been saved. Josh mentioned this just a moment ago, but this is where the people during the Protestant Reformation, 15, 1600s, had a real issue with the Catholic Church at the time. There was a lot of really icky stuff going on in the church. One of the problems was that there was not access for the people to the word of God. You had to take the word of the priest reading the scriptures to you, telling you what it said, because it was not available in the language of the people. Thank God for men like William Tyndale or Martin Luther who translated the Bible mostly into German and gave it to the people so that the people could read things like Romans 1 where it says the righteous live by faith. They could read things like Ephesians 2 that says it's by grace you have been saved and not because of anything you did. And they started to see this in the Bible and the reformers, the people who wanted to reform the church, that's all it means, They saw these things in the Bible, and they began to go, something's different than what I'm hearing on a Sunday morning at Mass. One of the big problems was there was these things that the church would do to add to salvation, to make requirements or prerequisite to coming into the grace of God. One thing was something called indulgences. The Catholic Church teaches something called purgatory, which means when you die, you go to this intermediate state And you work off the rest of your sin until you can finally get into heaven. Which, by the way, is not taught in the Bible. So what they would do, excuse me, is they would come to someone and they would say, you know what, if you want to reduce your time in purgatory, just pay an indulgence. That'll drop your time, boom, you'll be out of there like that. Or my favorite is they would come up to someone and say, 
I'm so sorry, your mother died last year. Did you know right now she's suffering in purgatory? Don't you want to help? Don't you want to alleviate her? You can pay an indulgence and get your mom out of purgatory. Well, which one of us, if we didn't have the Bible, if we didn't know any better, you'd whip out your checkbook as quick as I would. Of course I don't want my mother suffering in purgatory. And the church capitalized on this in a very terrible way. So what happened was men like Martin Luther or Earl Zwingli came across things in the scriptures and said, this isn't right. And they came up with five things regarding salvation. They're called the five solas. Sola is the Latin word for alone. And here's what they said. They said that salvation is sola scriptura. We find out how to be saved in scripture alone. Not what the priest tells you. Not what you hear in the street. The Bible tells us how to be saved. Salvation is sola gratia. It's by grace alone. Sola fide. It's by faith alone. Solus Christus, it's by the work of Jesus Christ alone. And lastly, sole dea gloria, it is to the glory of God alone. This did not go over well in the church. (laughs) This is what they were protesting. We're Protestant, we are protestant because they protested what was going on in the church. And they looked mostly at texts like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 to see that salvation is not merited on the work that we do, but by the grace of God. And out of that came a tremendous reform that is still echoing 500 years later, and one that was very much needed. So what does it mean, then, to be saved by grace? Paul says we are saved by God's grace. Here's my definition. To be saved by grace means that God has given 100% of what is necessary for you to come into his kingdom and participate in the blessings of his family. To be saved by grace means God has done everything necessary to save you and bring you into his family. Here's what Paul said in Romans 3.24. He said, We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. A gift is something that we receive, not something we work for. Justification or being saved, being declared right before God, is an act of grace that we receive as a gift. Paul's going to go on in Romans 4 and 5 to explain the difference between working for something and and receiving as a wage and receiving something simply as a gift. And he says, if grace is a wage, if we work for the grace of God, it is not grace. Because the very definition of grace is it's something we receive that we did not work for. And he takes a large part of those two chapters to talk about this. The Bible says we are saved by grace. It also says we are saved by grace apart from any work that we do. And when we get to the end of the text today, we're going to see why that is so important that we include that articulation when we talk about being saved by grace. Now as we talk about this, I want to mention one thing that I I think many people struggle with. We talk about being saved by grace, and the Bible clearly says that. But as we work this out in our lives, and think about your life as a Christian, think about your life in general, do we act as though we really are dependent on grace, or do we act as though there's kind of things we need to even subtly add into the grace? I believe that I'm saved by grace alone, and feeling really sorry when I screw up. 
yeah, I believe I'm saved by grace alone, and you've got to kind of keep your nose clean, otherwise God's not going to be happy with you. I believe I'm saved by grace alone, and, 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 and. We, we subtly add these things to what God has already done. You see what I'm saying? When the Bible says we're saved by grace alone, it means that. <laughs> it means that we're saved by grace. God extends grace to sinners, and that's all that we need. That's all that you need, which is why this is such a hopeful passage for people who don't know Jesus. Because it means that there's not a bunch of stuff that you have to do before you come to God. He extends grace to you to be received through faith. But we're not generally inclined to receive grace. I know I'm not. I mean, has, any, has anyone ever given you something and like your first impulse is to give something back? Or if someone does something nice, you want to do something back? Those are the subtle ways that our works creep into the attitude of grace. It's okay just to receive. Someone does something kind for you, praise God and thank them and be glad. When we try to work it off, it really is showing that we don't understand grace. That's something that I need to work at. I don't like people giving me stuff. I like to give stuff. I like to work for it. I want to feel like I earned it. That's not the way that it works with grace. Some of us are employees. Some are employers. If you're an employer, you want someone who works hard. (laughs) You want someone who really earns what they do. This is not the same when it comes to this theology of grace. We need to lay that aside and just simply receive from God. Being saved by grace means that there's nothing that you had to do in the past to receive God's grace. There's nothing that we continue to do to keep receiving that grace. It's a gift from God. Paul says we've been saved by grace through faith. What does that mean? What does it mean that we're saved by the grace of God through faith? I think of faith as the instrument God uses to bring us into the experience of his grace. Faith is the instrument God uses to bring us into the experience of faith. I get this from Romans 5. We went through the first half of Romans 5 this summer. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Access by faith into grace. What Romans 5.2 says. We've just seen that grace is a gift from God to be received. So how should we think about faith in this context? Is faith the supplement to grace? Do these things go together to form a whole? We're redoing our bathroom right now. And I'm tiling, and part of the shower base had this weird, uh, like, styrofoam that I had to tile to. You couldn't use regular thin set. You had to use two-part epoxy. Anyone ever used epoxy? Okay, epoxy is two parts. You put the liquid in, <clears throat> you stir it around, then you have the powder, you add the powder into the liquid, mix it up, and there you have the finished product. Is that what grace and faith is? Does God supply the liquid We supply the powder, you put it together, and boom, salvation epoxy. Is that how it works? I don't think so, and I'm going to tell you why. Faith is not a ratio with grace. 
This is not a pie chart that we have to fill in. God does not give us 75% of what's necessary and say, you've got to come up with the other 25%. You can use your faith. That'll be a good supplement. And we put the 75 with the 25, and boom, we're saved. Is that how it works? I don't think so. Let me ask you this. <clears throat> when you pray for the people who are lost in your life, family, friends, coworkers, what do you ask God to do? When you pray for people who are lost, what do you pray? You pray that God would save them. That's how, that's how I pray. I don't pray that they would suddenly become smart enough or that they would reach inside and find that little piece of faith that's already in them and just waken it and they would suddenly realize what's going on. No, we pray for God to save them. I don't stand up here on a Sunday morning and call you to repentance, call you to faithful living because I believe you have inside you what it takes. I call people to repentance through the gospel because I believe that God has the power to save. I believe God has the power to bring people from death to life. It isn't in you, I'm sorry. And it's not in me. It's by grace we have been saved through faith. Philippians 1.29 gives us a little bit of, I think, assurance, at least for me, in speaking this way. That not only is faith part of the salvation, but it indeed comes from God, as does the grace. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you to believe. I'm not trying to read anything into this. It's just what the text says. What does the word granted mean? Given. It's been given to us to believe in Jesus. All of our salvation is from God, both the grace and the faith to believe. I can say that the totality of salvation comes by God because I read in the Bible. I read it here in Ephesians 2. That it's apart from anything we do. Other places talk about it as well. The text I just read in Philippians, if you look at Acts chapter 18, Apollos is sent to work with this group of people and he talks about helping those who had believed as a result of the grace of God. What does that mean if someone believes as a result of the grace of God? I think when you pair it with other scripture, it means that God gave them the ability to believe. Now, some will read Ephesians 2.8. They'll see the word this and say, well, that's not referring to faith, it's referring to grace. Okay, look, look at the text again. Look in your Bible, Ephesians 2.8. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. When Paul says that this is not your own doing, there's a couple reasons why I think that he's saying the whole thing, not just one word. Grammatically, in the original language, it does not refer back to one word, but to the whole concept. Salvation, grace, and faith. But more than just grammatical proof, Paul's going to go on in the text to tell us, this isn't your own doing. And he's going to say that very clearly. As human beings, I think we're always asking, and I kind of referred to this before, we're always asking, what can I do? We're hesitant to receive as a gift. Jesus touched on this in John 6. If 
Remember John 6? He had just fed the 5,000. He'd crossed over the sea, and the people were following him, not because they believed in him, but because they really were hungry and they wanted more food, right? So they're following after him. They want to know how to get another meal. Here's the account, John 6, starting in verse 27. Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do? That's the question we always ask, right? What must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, how can we benefit from this again? What do we have to do? Tell, just tell us what to do. I'll do it. This is what Jesus says. Verse 29 of John 6. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God. You can see him all kind of lean forward. What's he going to say? What does he say? That you believe in him whom God sent. What's the work? Jesus said, believe. Which is no work. It's a simple receiving of all that God is for us in Jesus. I mean, rather than, rather than trying to figure out how we can add to what God did, why don't we just receive what God provides? Why, why would we want to? Are you better than God? Do I know better than my Creator? No. God has given us everything. Why, why do we need to try and supplement that and add to that? Just to make us feel like we got some skin in the game or what? Receive it. Don't, don't add anything to this. I was thinking about, we don't really do banquets anymore, do we? But get in your mind this picture of a really fancy meal, like excellent, whatever your favorite food is, Taco Bell or whatever. Just really fancy, Okay. There's two sets of silverware. You don't even know what to do with them, it's, but it's super fancy. They spread the food out. It's amazing. And you go, oh, wait a minute. I think, I think there's something I need to put on this to really make it better. And you pull out a can of refried beans. Now, I'm talking cheap, cold, nasty refried beans. You crack that thing open and you smear it all over that prime rib. And you're like, oh, there, that's better. My point is don't open your spiritual refried beans. Okay? Keep those in the can. You don't need them. Don't add to the feast of grace that God has given to us. You don't need to. There's nothing you have to do. Just receive it. Receive it. Receive it. It's really all we can do anyways. Even if you try to add anything, you're not going to add to what God has done. Just receive it. Enjoy His grace. Rest in His grace. And live a life of thankfulness to Him. Let's keep moving in the text. Look at this next phrase. The middle of verse 8 into verse 9. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. I want to work this part backwards. We're going to start at the end. Why do you think Paul includes this about boasting? I mean, wouldn't it just have been enough to say you've been saved by grace through faith? Like, yep, that's true, great. Why does he add in this part? What's he trying to say? After reading the Bible, I think we should have a pretty clear idea that God loves when we boast in him, when we exalt him for his work, and he hates when we boast in ourselves. 
because it takes the credit and the glory that he rightfully deserves and puts it on us who are quite unworthy. God loves when we exalt him, when we boast in him. Boasting is the opposite of humility. Boasting makes a big deal out of what we have done, what we have said, what we have earned. I'm sure we've all been around this person who just loves to tell you how much money they made last year, loves to tell you how much stuff they have or whatever. And you, you kind of get annoyed at that. Well, think about how much more stinky it is for God to hear us constantly taking credit for what he did. That's not what we were created for. John Piper had a really helpful uh, message about this, and I, I stole a quote from him, and this is what he says. Boasting in man deflects, God's, deflects man's attention from the fountain of his joy and so ruins his life. It tricks man into replacing magnificence with a mirror. Ooh, that's good. Boasting tricks man into replacing magnificence with a mirror. That's what it does. We were not designed by God to be impressed with our own accomplishments. This is all over the Bible. Remember the Tower of Babel? People were kind of putting their thumbs in their suspenders going, this is pretty great. God comes down and he's like, what in the world is this? You're done. That's not impressive to God. And neither are the things that we conjure up in ourselves to try to supplement what God has done. God deserves the credit. God deserves the glory. It doesn't mean there's nothing that we do of significance. It just means put the credit where credit is due. If God saved us, give God the glory. The reason I'm dwelling on this is because I think we read in the Bible that faith excludes boasting. So here's where I'm going to tie this back into what we just talked about with faith. Faith excludes boasting. Romans 3.27. Paul has just talked about being justified by God's grace as a gift. Remember, I read that from verse 24. And now this is what he says in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? If we have been saved by God's grace as a gift... What becomes a boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but a law of faith. What's he saying? Faith excludes boasting or does away with boasting. How can that be true? Why is that true? The only way Paul can rightfully say that faith excludes boasting is if faith is also a gift that you and I cannot take credit for. Taking credit for work, getting paid a wage for doing work, is a biblical principle. The Bible talks about that. That's right and good. Not when it comes to spiritual matters like this. So it's not as if there's no concept of working for something in the Bible. But when it comes to the faith that we receive, the grace that we receive from God, we can't take credit because we didn't produce it ourselves. You see that? I'm, I'm not trying to add extra things to the Bible. I'm reading texts like this and going, how does this fit together? If boasting 
if we can define that as our taking credit for what happened, and faith nullifies boasting, or in other words, we don't have any grounds to boast because of faith, then we should conclude that we can't take credit for faith. We cannot boast in our faith because I think it was given to us by a loving Heavenly Father. So Ephesians 2.9 tells us that we can't boast in our salvation because it has come from God and not our own efforts. This is very clearly seen in the first phrase there of verse 9. This is not your own doing. It's not. And I'm still sometimes puzzled. I probably shouldn't be, but when there's whole denominations and churches who are intent on adding something to faith, making requirements along with faith in order to be saved or to come in. I just, I don't know how much more clearly you could say it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. How would you simplify that? How would you say that more clearly? I can't think of a way. It's just what the Bible's telling us. So why... Why spend a whole Sunday on this? Why is this good news for us that we have been saved by grace through faith? I told you at the beginning, I wanted this morning to have a better understanding of how you came to be saved. That's a reminder for those who are believers. And for those apart from Christ, I want this to be an encouragement to you. So a reminder and an encouragement. First, let's look at the reminder. If you know yourself to be in Christ this morning, you enjoy communion with God, you enjoy fellowship with his people, the forgiveness of sins, then let this text serve as a reminder to you, brother and sister, that God has saved you by his grace alone. And what a comfort to rest in that. Remember verse 7 of chapter 2? where it said that God is not only a God of grace, but a God with riches of grace, immeasurable riches of grace. He delights to show you his wealth. He delights to show you his goodness, all made available because of what Jesus has done. And not only do we experience grace at conversion, but the book tells us that for all of eternity we will experience the grace of God should give you confidence, something to look forward to. And for a reminder, for those who are apart from Christ in encouragement, right now this morning, you can come to Jesus. You don't have to leave from here and fix the thing. You don't have to wait a week to really get ready. If the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, You hear the word of God telling you there's nothing you can do. Just receive the gift of grace. Don't don't wait. There's no reason to wait. There's nothing you can do to be more prepared but to simply receive the gift of God's grace. An encouragement and a reminder. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the power of your word. I thank you for the clarity of your word. There are things that are difficult to understand and there are things that seem to be clear. I thank you, Lord, that your scripture gives testament that we 
have been saved by grace through faith and that there was nothing that we did. We simply receive from you what you delight to give us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work this deep into our hearts as we go out into the world now and we interact with people who are difficult, people who are challenging. Would we not see them as obstacles to our relationship with you or annoyances, but God, would we see them as people who are indeed worthy of receiving your grace, not because of anything they do, but just because you lavish your grace. Help us to share this with those around us, Lord. Just as David prayed earlier, may we be a people who boldly speak the gospel, but do it in a way that is winsome and loving. We're all just helpless recipients, God. We have received from you grace upon grace. Help us to celebrate that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.